0: i
1: This is The New Right, a podcast for the lost arts, reclaiming the literary holy land from the heathen. This is Dan Baltic. And this is Matt Pegasus, And this is episode 50, a true milestone here. <laughs> and <laughs> we are very happy to share this milestone with none other than Jacob Everett, a.k.a. Uh, at one point Blowergeist the uh, editor-in-chief of Apocalypse Confidential, the founder of Apocalypse Confidential, uh, a one-time host of the Elroy Boys podcast, very popular pod, current co-host of uh, Resident Life Enjoyer, which is a, a great pod with just a ton of episodes that feature you know many people who have been on New Right, such as Kevin, Brad, uh i i believe uh howling you didn't i, I could be mm-hmm. wrong there but um yeah just uh i mean you have a tremendous body of work already and uh we're we're very happy to have you with us jacob
2: i'm happy to be here uh for your big five zero episode it's an honor <laughs> uh, how are you guys doing doing
1: we're, well we're great oh, yeah. i yeah. was uh just regaling you two off of uh <laughs> the uh live recording that um I had a very uh, interesting and unexpected mushroom trip yesterday, which was uh enlightening and <laughs> um yeah and I wound up listening to the uh Art of Darkness episode uh with Walt Disney and and you blower you you Jacob so uh yeah was it was a episode. very pleasant end to to the trip. It brought it home, <laughs> shall we say
3: brought it home yeah. beautiful. No, yeah, that's definitely one of the, so I was just on, oh, the connections abound here. I was just on Art of Darkness yesterday, for my first appearance on that podcast, and um, you know, they do a great pod over there, And but really, one of my favorite episodes is that Disney episode uh, that they did with you. Yeah, that Disney one, I mean, that
2: sort of is a lot of that, and the Francis Bacon one, I feel like mm-hmm. it's we're, are sort of great examples of, like, the kind of, like, weirdness that we're into here at. Apocalypse Confidential because hmm. it's all about it's like you know have the weird sort of like culty kind of symbolism shit with like you know Disneyland and like all the like older and like animated cartoons and I, animated cartoons I'm repeating myself like an idiot um all the hmm. cartoons and stuff yeah and then you have like all the all weird like sort of like deep state kind of like paranoid right. kind of stuff so like those are sort of that Disney episode is sort of like a perfect microcosm of like what we're into.
3: Absolutely. Absolutely. And where it crosses over with art of dark as well. And and I was just going to say, uh, Jacob, it's good to speak again because I think the first time we ever talked, was on Robert Stark's podcast. I was, just, yeah. I was kind of way telling, back in the day. Yeah, way back in the day. I mean, it wasn't that long ago, but yet it also does feel like a it different. It feels time like a course. long ago. Yeah, because yeah, yeah. you were going by Blower Guys at the time. We mostly talked about like uh, old, like the kind of old bathroom type interior decorating <laughs> pictures. <laughs> yeah, that was back when I was doing that. the
2: Bathist Gang thing and like posting yeah, like yeah, yeah. carpeted bathrooms and shit. Yeah,
3: so like definitely a di- kind of, so maybe a different uh, incarnation uh, of Jacob Everett slash Blower Guys, but never, but but not more than like two years ago tops. So it's. Yeah, you know, good to speak again in any case. Yeah, for sure. The
1: internet moves at light speed and um yeah, we keep cycling through different uh, eras and different incarnations and uh we're, you know, certainly very excited to discuss uh, Apocalypse Confidential, which is something that uh you founded and debuted around 3 years ago, is is that right, Jacob?
2: Yeah, our debut actually our sort of Birthday was uh, February twenty third. Um, oh Debuted. Wow. We mm-hmm. debuted in twenty twenty one. Um, and so yeah, our year, our one year anniversary was when Russia invaded Ukraine, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so it was sort of like, all right, well, we definitely are in, you know, apocalyptic now. Um, yes, but mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's been about yeah we're in our third year right now well you guys should have like the
1: uh the rocky four uh, issue or something <laughs> <laughs> the draco issue um yeah no i mean apocalypse confidential is i mean thank you for you know publishing uh, the review of nutcranker by brad kelly that was great i loved it and i've been a fan of apocalypse confidential for a while and one of the reasons why I'm a fan is so like New Right. Obviously, what we're doing here is we're platforming art that occurs out of the mainstream, not necessarily right wing art, but just art that isn't at home in you know the traditional publishing ecosystem or entertainment ecosystem. And I see, and I I bet you'll agree with me, Apocalypse Confidential as a uh, a. Vehicle, a you know, a a venue for just that type of writing, because I mean, this is like, yes, it could be published in the mainstream, certainly, but um, you know, certainly a lot of our guys, like Arbogast, Detective Wolfman, Crooner, <laughs> uh, V N Ebert, uh, they they're all you know published to uh, great uh, great acclaim in Apocalypse Confidential. And uh, other, you know, former guests like Steph, um, he's not a former guest, but Hayden, people who are mm-hmm. like generally in the sphere that I think as we go on in the episode, we've uh, labeled the the weird right. And we'll get into yeah. what we think that means. But uh, yeah, I mean, your, your magazine, I would say, is one of the premier vehicles for getting writing and art out there that is not, um, you know, mainstream you know iron sanded down mainstream writing entertainment
2: for sure well we're always sort of to like what do we talk like sort of edgy extrapolations and sort of fringe fascinations and all that kind of shit um i think the way that i kind of look you know this thing of oz you know to use mm-hmm. mafia argot, <laughs> is like right. the way that there's like two sort of like streams and it's one is dissident and then the other is dissonant where it's like dissident would be sort of more explicitly political stuff which has you know its place and its purpose and like i would that'd be like like i am seven um, yeah 1776 mm-hmm. and then make like passage prize is sort of they i mean obviously they have a focus on the art but also they have they're they have a project and that's yeah. great but then there are, i think there are other play venues that are more dissonant like uh, Apocalypse Confidential and then like, you know, maybe expat and then a couple other places where it's sort of more about rebelling, you know, maybe we have some implicit politics. I'm not, I'm not going to be like, no, we're not political at all. Um, You know, we have all of our implicit sort of meta politics. And I think uh, Max managing our managing editor sort of spoke to that very eloquently when he was on. Um but like our interest is sort of like rebelling against the mainstream because it's sort of, well, the mainstream is so uh, fixated on maintaining a sort of uh unipolarity of just basically like a single voice kind of thing. Whereas yeah. we are interested in sort of, you know, we present a sort of uh, numerous voices, some that are like, you know, we publish like, all kinds of people besides like the people that you listed, like Barbagast and Wolfman. We also like publish like rant or staff. Like we also publish like random, like 50 year old poets in Scotland who found us on like yeah. duotrope kind of thing. Um, oh, cool. And so it's, it's sort of like, it's a, it's a niche, but it's also like a big tent, I guess.
3: Yeah, no, I hear what you mean. Um, I was talking uh, to Dan uh, in preparation for this episode uh, I kind of talked about my own experience uh, of you know Twitter users and uh, and content generators like you uh, and others who I, I kind of initially saw as coming out like almost like the perfume nationalist sphere. And my my point about it, uh, kind of definitely what you said makes sense. You know, there's dissident uh, platforms and there's also dissonant platforms. Uh, but I, I definitely kind of think of it partially as. Um, it's almost like that. there's a there's a new kind of subculture that emerged from the soil out of what once was kind of a more explicitly political grouping principle. Like, you know, everyone, you know, during 2016 and Trump, you know, was rallied around a certain kind of politics. But once you get a lot of people together on the internet uh, and making the connections, then other aspects of culture that may or may not actually have anything directly to do with politics start to, to grow out of that. And that's kind of how I see, yeah, as you said, um, uh, places like Expat and definitely Apocalypse Confidential as well. Is this just is, it's like, uh, you know, it, there was initially like maybe a political reason why a lot of these people came to know each other, and with that came the kind of metapolitical assumptions behind things. But but now it's actually kind of developed a life of its own as a you know as a cultural hub, so to speak. Absolutely.
1: To what extent would you say, um, when I think of Apocalypse Confidential? to me uh noir goes hand in hand with your kind of uh theme and and vibe is um is that correct is that um generally like you you aim to publish content and stories that uh are not you know entirely noir but um have that uh
2: uh that tone yeah i think when i i mean that what you you say calling it a tone is correct because I've always thought of noir as more of a tonal thing rather than a genre thing. Um and I'm actually, you know, criminally underread in terms of noir. Like I mean, I've read a little hammock, I've read some uh, James Kane, I've read a lot of Elroy, but I don't know, I wouldn't necessarily call him there's a sort of distinction between noir and hard boiled. That like okay. I mean, I don't really I don't really know what the distinction is, but I think it's sort of more of an academic one. Um but I mean I'm definitely influenced by James Elroy. I mean, I was the host of Elroy Boys, so <laughs> it kind of gotta be. Um and just that sort of like it's that sort of synthesis, you know, like we're talking about about the Disney thing, especially like with like the like Underworld USA trilogy, like American Tabloid, Cold 6,000, Blitz Rover, that are like that synthesis of like the sort of low street level kind of sleaze and then like the kind of like higher corridors of power conspiring and politicking type thing. Um, And then the kind of realization that like there is like no difference. Like it's all there's no... There's sort of no division between the upper world and the underworld, that it's all just those one world. Um, and so how that informs, uh, informs our sensibility is just a recognition of that sort of not necessarily demon hauntedness, but just sort of like the general hauntedness of noir and how so much of it is like predicated on like, sort of normal people being, like, you know, forced to, like, interact with, like, sort of, like, forces that are, like, far beyond what they understand, whether that's, like, you know, real specific things, like, I don't know, like, you know, like, government conspiracies or whatever, mm-hmm. or just, like, sort of forces of, like, you know, greed or, like, lust for power or something like that. Yeah, no yeah
3: good makes sense. go on nah. uh no I just was gonna comment that that, that I, I like that definition of Noir it kind of goes even deeper um you know oftentimes you'll hear uh, sort of you know basic definitions of Noir is like uh having to do with crime and you know the, you know there's no clear-cut good versus evil I think that's all true but on a deeper level yeah I think it stretches toward what you um sort of unpacked there uh that notion of normal people interacting with forces. Um, beyond their control, whether they're, you know, criminal or or conspiratorial organizations, or um, or like forces in the universe, even like, like greed or 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 lust or, or or rage, perhaps. I'm just reminded it's kind of that deeper level of noir where it's not just like the Maltese Falcon, but it's also eyes wide shut, and even a lot of David Lynch. Even you know, it's like this notion of, of normal people dealing with these these forces that seem to come out of nowhere. Um, I think it's kind of just, kind of, it's just a cool definition of noir. Yeah. And one of our big
2: sort of, or besides, you know, PsyOps, lees Rag, our big sort of like tagline for this year and forward, hopefully is sort of uh, low lives and high strangeness, which is kind of a riff oh, on the whole, I like, like that. a riff on the whole, like, you know, low lives and high tech definition of cyberpunk. Um, because you know I think what we're, we're trying to grapple at at Apocalypse Confidential is trying to think of like what the new thing is after cyberpunk because cyberpunk was so specific about like you know anxieties of technology in like the 80s and 90s and you know now we've sort of I mean we're living in a dystopia that they imagined so what we're What we're interested now in is, like, the sort of grappling with interactions of, like, sort of, like, the speculative nature, I guess. Because high strangeness, in its Mm -hmm. strict definition, applies to, like, UFO stuff. But it also generally applies to just any sort of, like, paranormal or, like, parapolitical kind of thing um like there's yeah. high strangeness around that air force base or something like that um and so like what we're interested in is like that that kind of like commingling of like that kind of like wider and deeper haunting of the world of like sort of like uh hidden forces interacting with low lives and the good thing with like the low lives tag is it's like that doesn't necessarily have to be criminal that can just be like you know, like, that's generally people who are on the fringes, however that, you know, manifests itself. And um, totally. And so, totally. yeah, we're really yeah. into it. It's like, yeah, like, just like some, like, I don't know, some, like, illegal, like, poachers encountering, you know, I don't know, something out in the woods or, like, that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, it no. Seems like it seems like that's really, like, noir and this high strangeness, low lives, lens of viewing the world. We talked before this episode, Matt and I, and in the notes that we sent you, that we're kind of interested why the right is drawn to noir. And I I think it seems as we were discussing this, it seems logical in that noir posits a, a worldview that is morally ambiguous, where it's, you know, there are forces that are arrayed, you know, not necessarily against you, but they could be against you that obscure, you know, the, the true um, goals and, you know, the forces that move you. And I mean, certainly if you're on the right, that's the way you perceive the world today. You you wake up and you're like, yes, I know shadowy uh, tech and government and whatever cabals are you know mm-hmm. controlling me and controlling my life in ways that I don't want or like. Whereas if you're more of a normie or more of a lib, you wake up and you're like, we're progressing toward greater transparency and honesty and a better society. And so it, to me, it makes you know perfect sense that yes, the right would be interested in this kind of more murky view of things where, you know, you uh, are encountering, you know, within, certainly in the external world, um, not necessarily entirely malevolent forces, but certainly uh, not entirely good forces and within yourself. Like I'm sure many, many people on the right have, you know, do like search, search their souls or whatever. And, you know, there it's, you know, it's hard to be entirely morally consistent or ideologically consistent in such a kind of crazy time. So I think Noir to me, like, and I'm just realizing this right now, I'm mm-hmm. speaking off the top of my head, but I realize it's uh, something that is, you know, probably speaks to quote unquote, our guys uh, very strongly.
2: Yeah, for sure. Well, it, cause it also goes hand in hand with, uh, are scene sort of interest in Lovecraft because yes. oh, yeah. it's, you know we have this sort of metaphor of like the sort of like deep state being like Cthulhu kind of thing,
3: yeah. and then
2: that just sort of like applies to, you know, that applies out like also then with noir or like hard boiled stuff where it's like Cthulhu is just sort of whatever the hidden forces are, and so it becomes a sort it's like a kind of yeah. I don't know, it's a noir as kind of like cosmic sort of understanding of the world, I guess. I don't know.
3: Hmm. Yeah, no, 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 I like that a lot.
1: Makes sense. Have you ever read any Elmer Leonard? Because he's, uh, he's one of my favorite noir writers. Um, I've read, no worries, I, I think, mm-hmm.
2: I've read probably, I think, like, Get Shorty. I think maybe, okay. like... That's it, yeah. Uh Jackie Brown rum—that was like rum punch, yeah. right? Or something. It,
3: it yeah, that, but that no, I haven't read
2: that much. Leonard.
1: Kill shot is a very good one. I, I think we were talking about that one with Max. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Uh, what uh, Elroy books do you recommend? By the way, because I, I actually I've only seen L.A. Confidential. I have not read any Elroy. So, uh, what oh, what man. should I read to get Elroy pilled?
2: To get Elroy pilled, I would recommend. I would probably start with American Tabloid,
0: because
2: hmm. right. that is. That's. I mean, that's more. Um, let's see. Yeah, that's because that's more sort of about like conspiracy stuff, and it's the beginning of the um, Underworld USA trilogy. Otherwise, I would start with. Uh, the Black Dahlia, because he basically has two big. Uh, series. One is the LA Quartet and then the other is the Underworld USA trilogy. LA Quartet is obviously more about Los Angeles and that one is sort of more I guess strictly sort of crime focused Mm -hmm. whereas with the Underworld USA trilogy he sort of expands it more to be at a national and even international scope Mm -hmm. and obviously it's still like crime shit but, like, it's more sort of, it goes into, like, the territory of, like, parapolitics. Um, and so, it kind of, I mean, it just sort of, I would recommend everything he's written. But, like, just sort sure. of depending on whether you're more into, like, the strictly sort of, like, prime thriller kind of stuff or more of, like, the conspiracy stuff is should how, you know, choose your own adventure on that one.
3: I see. Okay. So, Black Dahlia is part of the L.A. Quartet, which would make sense. Yeah. Is it um? I haven't I, again. I haven't read this, but uh, is it a? Is it is it like since Black Dolly obviously it was a real event? Does that involve real people as characters, kind of thing, or is it much more uh, obviously fictional?
2: Yeah, it, it has. Uh, he El, Elroy is really good at sort of like blending in real people. Wow. Um, yeah, and and you know sometimes you know he always waits until after they're dead, so he won't get sued for life <laughs> um mm-hmm. but like uh yeah it, it definitely involves real people i mean he in the book black dahlia he sort of solves it in like a fictionalized way but yeah there's still going to be like real people in there um but no it's, it's interesting it's a, with yeah. like because like uh because like i remember reading american tabloid and like there is like some character in it who's like a you know, like a not even like a tertiary, like a third level character. He's like basically a background character named Chuck Rogers. And, you know, he just makes a couple of appearances in there, you know, he's like a pilot character. And then I look him up, and it, it turns out he was like a real dude who hmm. like got like he was like he he's like now presumed missing because. Uh, he basically killed his parents and like chopped them up and put him in his refrigerator, and then and like he was had some weird connection to like the JFK assassination.
0: Oh, damn. and yeah,
2: and Elroy. So and Elroy has him like as like a background character in this book, and it's like that's like that's the kind of like interesting rabbit hole and sort of nexus of the world and underworld stuff that like I'm into and we Definitely. are into it, at Apocalypse Confidential, where it's, like, just this super tawdry, you know, murder of parents, like, very, like, sort of tabloid stuff, and then it's, like, has, like, weird connections to, like, this, like huge, like, huge, like, national-level thing, like the Kennedy assassination.
1: Absolutely. I'm curious, yeah, where would that you too. class Don Why? DeLillo in all of this? Because I read Underworld, That was back when I was in undergrad and I had lots of free time. I don't think I could read a 900-page book (laughs) now. But uh, I read Underworld. I understand Libra was also about the Kennedy assassination. Mm -hmm. It seems like there's some real overlap with uh, DeLillo and more noir
2: elements. Yeah, I mean, DeLillo is definitely... I mean, he's off. Like they would strictly classify him as, I guess, postmodern. But I mean, he directly inspired Elroy to write American tabloid. Oh wow! Mesolibra. Okay. Interesting. Um, good. Good to know. <laughs> yeah, it is yeah. Good to know, And yeah. I mean, part of what part of what I've always been wanting to sort of champion is sort of the idea that like Elroy isn't like a mere sort of genre writer. You know, he's just sort of classified as like, oh, he's like a crime novelist, whatever. But like I've always sort of wanted people to see him as like on the same level as like DeLillo and Pinchon and yeah. McCarthy. Um where because it's like he I don't know, they're all get they're all sort of grasping at like the same kind of like that sort of like weirdness of the 20th century especially yeah, in the yeah. uh, war period um and and so yeah i think they should all be in like the same conversation
3: yeah i think that's sense. a a worthy goal it's kind of interesting how different writers get end up getting characterized in different ways very much as you said elroy is regarded as a crime writer but then Delillo, you know, has this kind of, there's a a sort of academic appreciation of what would be, you know, considered postmodernism, but it's not always the best defined thing. And um, again, as Dan addressed, I don't think either of us are are super well read in Elroy, unfortunately, but like, uh, but but I would totally believe that that there's a lot more to it than just being crime fiction in the same way that Don Delillo is in a book like Libra, for example, comes closer to being a crime fiction writer than than his postmodern Reputation uh would necessarily reveal It's kind of silly the way writers get uh kind of shoeboxed sometimes. Yeah.
2: And then there's sort of a continuity with because one thing that I think about with DeLillo is he had like an interview, and I forget if he said it in Libra, but like there's like an interview where he's talking about like, you know, Libra and like the JFK assassination and how he says that like the Warren commission report is basically something that Joyce would have written if he like lived in like Iowa instead of Ireland or something like that, because it becomes this like hat, like through this like investigation of like, you know, this like, you know, national level crime basically is like that through that sort of like thing, like, it basically became like this cataloging of basically what like the early 1960s looked like because they would be interviewing the witnesses and the witnesses of the witnesses and like family and stuff like that. And just sort of, you get this like snapshot of like how things were back then. And like it ultimately, it ultimately Hmm. doesn't even like connect that much to the assassination, but it becomes like this, like tapestry of you know life back then and i sort of through that you know sort of comparison it's like you know joyce delillo elroy they're all sort of part of that same like continuity
3: definitely no that's fascinating yeah actually this is um not on the outline but i'm just kind of thinking of it now um a possible book recommendation for you and for apocalypse confidential fans although maybe you're already familiar with it have you heard about this kind of new um book? Uh what what's even the word? New investigative series of books. There's two of them about uh the Zodiac Killer that came out last year. Have you heard about this? I don't think so. Uh highly would recommend. I'm trying to get the the writer's name is Jarrett Kobeck. He's um like an LA-based writer who actually self-publishes a lot, but um th- this book he wrote on the Zodiac, which is called um, how to find it's called how to find Zodiac it was published about a year ago. It was part of a, there, there, it was published in um, at the same time as another book called motor spirit, the long hunt for the Zodiac, uh, two books. Um, they're actually self-published, although their findings ha- um, have been taken seriously uh, by LA magazine and other sources. I myself read these books and found them extremely compelling as uh, to the, the suspect they point out as, as Zodiac, which um, no, no one else has. Uh, pointed to before I came across this guy first on Bredy Stenellis' podcast. Um, definitely generating some buzz, but what's what's fascinating about it is less so. I mean I'm I am interested in like true crime and like unsolved crimes like Zodiac, but also um, basically the way he deduces his suspect is by um, looking at all the different cultural references and very specific cultural references to comic books to movies, and other things that the Zodiac put in his letters to the San Francisco Chronicle. Um, so, it's a very thrilling read, but also, and I'm like a completely a believer in the suspect it puts forward, but also it's like a really, really good uh, encapsulation of the craziness of uh, California and the Bay Area in the 60s and this kind of sociological portrait of the different um, events and the different cultural forces at play. I think you, from what I'm hearing about uh, what you guys do at Apocalypse Confidential, I think you'd probably really, really enjoy it. Highly recommended to. To you and to anyone who's listening who might be interested in such things.
2: Oh, this looks really cool. I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, Ooh. I highly
3: recommend. And again, the writer's like, you know, he self-publishes. He's kind of like, I mean, I'm not going to say he's like us. He's just like us. But like, you know, he's, <laughs> he's not like some, you know, uh high, you know uh, highfalutin degree holding NPR darling. He's like a, you know, working writer.
2: All the
1: best yeah, stuff It's just sort of... happening in the shadows, in yeah. our spaces
2: yeah it sort of reminds it's like the whole idea of it's like if you know if you want to solve a crime you have to solve the society or whatever the sort of like holistic approach Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah, i dig that definitely
3: yeah and the reason he i'll shut up about this in a second but the reason he published it in two books is because one is like very technical like this is this is like the evidence i have for this guy being zodiac and then the other is much more the um like uh you know nonfiction piece about uh, a certain period of time and the cultural context. It's very interesting. Nice.
1: I'll have to check it out too. Yeah, definitely. It uh, And I imagine the thesis is different than the movie Zodiac. So yeah. Oh,
3: yeah, definitely. Um, Yeah, it kind of rules that out. But
1: <laughs> Interesting. Maybe maybe a legal case there for that, dude. Who knows? <laughs> um, yeah, so resident life enjoyer. We wanted to dig into that, and uh, I mean, it seems like you guys have been going for a little while now, and it uh, it seems like maybe when it started, you weren't yet a uh, a co-host, Jacob, <clears throat> but uh, you you are now a, a co-host of uh, RLE, right?
2: Uh, and I think it shares like the same like SoundCloud and Twitter account or like a previous project that Will had called uh, No Future. Which okay. like that was like the one that like uh Geo and others were uh guests on. And oh, okay, I was, yeah, and I yeah, was a guest a them. couple times, and then he sort of revamped it as resident life enjoyer, and so it's uh Will and then me and Ir- he are co-hosts on that one. Um and I don't know, I think obviously Will would be better to sort of get into it, um, and actually he would be. You, you guys should have him as a guest on this podcast at some point um Absolutely. because you know it's sort of definitely his darling and i think his sort of idea of it is that like you know no future was sort of him more being like in the kind of uh how he would put it like post-punk goth kind of phase whereas resident life enjoyer is sort of more of him you know coming out of that and becoming more of like the sort of new wave so like yeah. from joy division to new order kind of oh, thing totally. um yeah and yeah and like i mean i think my way of sort of approaching it is it's sort of like there's a whole idea of like resident life enjoyer it's sort of like a kind of faux like masonic lodge kind of thing like we are the exalted like whatever like woodchoppers of Washington or some kind of lodge Hmm. kind of thing. Um, Hmm. And, like, my thinking about it is, you know, you have... Everyone's seen that, like, atrocious comic of, like, let people enjoy things. Um, And the way that's sort of presented is, like, in defense of, like, multi-billion dollar movie franchises. And as a way of sort of, like, shutting up like any sort of criticism but i think so far in our episodes we've demonstrated that like the true way of enjoying something is by critiquing it and analyzing it and dissecting it um and so we sort of i guess our mission with that or my perception of our mission with it is to sort of offer a kind of alternate way of enjoying something
1: Absolutely. Like the way you and the episode that I listened to to get ready for this, I, uh, I had recently seen Barry Lyndon. So this made uh, I was interested to listen to this episode and it made perfect sense. But it was your most recent episode with uh, Aldis uh, about Barry Lyndon. And yeah, as you're describing the process, it was, you know, very much you're analyzing it, you're analyzing its strengths, its weaknesses. And uh, truly enjoying it, I suppose, in that way that, uh, say, an Indian enjoys the whole animal, (laughs) (laughs) uh, you know, feasting on all of his parts. Mm -hmm. And it, um, yeah, I mean, you brought up a lot of, and that's one of, another reason why I selected it is like Barry Lyndon is a great study in masculinity. And that has been a recurring topic on New Right. And, um, yeah, so, like, the the way you dug into, I believe, like, the episode started off with um, one of you, maybe even you, uh, Jacob, referring to him as a boy boss. And oh, I thought yeah. that, was, that was the perfect take on him because, like, he is, like, exactly, like, that kind of, like, like well, we, when you think of a girl boss, you think of someone who, like, kind of um, is, like, you know, fake it till you make it like put on the trappings of authority and eventually like people will recognize you for the boss you are and that's like exactly (laughs) what barry does throughout the whole movie he's like in every situation he's just like you know
2: scurrying and scampering around i mean he definitely leans in he leans in (laughs) and over but then he basically the whole story is him basically like failing upward and just sort of like managing to like stagger his way into like you know by the end of it having like a country house and stuff like that um yeah a boy it's like boss the, yeah the <laughs> ultimate story of making it work he leans in so
1: hard he falls over because he doesn't have a leg at the end that's right, <laughs> that's right.
0: <laughs>
1: it uh yeah no there's a lot of great stuff that you brought up in there like um So I I really like the distinction between how you I remember you were the one who brought this up, how he has a sort of low level animal cunning, as opposed to that, like he is a trickster, but not in that house of cards style way where he's thinking like, you know, 20 steps ahead he's like literally thinking like one or two steps ahead throughout the entire movie. And I mean, that's, it's, charm. It's just like, he's just, you know, uh, get, you know, scraping by by the, the seat of his pants throughout the, the film.
2: Survives by his like wits and guile and just sort of being able to like, you know, like the sort of genius of the low level cunning isn't how to manipulate events to your sort of ultimate like satisfaction or benefit, but by sort of like reacting after the fact. And yeah, I mean he's it's a yeah, it's like a fascinating portrait of that kind of uh animal kind of instinct. Hmm.
1: Absolutely. And he has um you, you mentioned uh or one of you mentioned that he's a bit of a himbo and like, yes, he does have that look like he's like kind of like um, stereotypically good looking, but not necessarily very expressive, like the way you you might um, like, like sometimes when I see a, a certain type of actress, I'm like, yes, she's pretty, but like, she's so pretty, she's plain, she just kind of like lacks character. And like, that's kind of like, you know, as you see him, like, you know, moving around, it's like, yes, he does seem, like, kind of um, vacant. And I, I think to an extent that was intentional.
2: Oh, for sure. Well, it's, like, I think people, critics at the time, and I think some still do, it's, like, oh, they criticize Ryan O'Neill because it's, like, he's not a very good actor, but it's, like, it's sort of, like, the whole point of the character and why Kubrick cast him is because he was this kind of... I mean, he was, like, vaguely thinking thinking man but like he was still like i mean he was like a like a you know hot commodity in like 1970s hollywood (laughs) and like the whole so the whole point of casting him as this like you know guy in like the 1700s 1800s is like to like underline the fact that like you know I mean, it sort of underlines the whole like low level cunning thing where it's like he isn't this like deeply expressive, brooding character actor. He's like a sort of like real like surface level, you know, mile wide, inch deep kind of like, you know, star kind of deal.
1: Yeah. Like one of my favorite. I, I mean, like his seduction of Lady Lyndon, that was hilarious, too. He just kind of like walks up to her. and He's like, I'm going to kiss you now. But uh, that, that was funny. But even funnier to me was the initial seduction of the, um, I guess she was a uh, a German or, or Czech, um, not quite peasant, but like farmer's wife, who he like stumbles upon. And like, it's like, it's very obvious that he's going to make a play for her. And then he like he does in some like kind of like gentlemanly, but not so gentlemanly way, like says something like, you must uh, be uh, very lonely with your husband away, <laughs> 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 and and like and you know it, it worked. She's just like, yes, I actually. He's <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs> got he he's got that PUA game going on.
1: That's right, that 18th century PUA game. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. No, there was it was the libertine era. So. That's right. As as you can tell from as you mentioned on the episode, the uh, syphilitic scars on their faces that they would hide with the the black dots.
2: Yeah, I, that oh, wow. all that stuff is like in like crazy, and I think I sort of like talk about it in the episode where it's sort of like this is like the world, or allude to it in the episode where it's like this is the world that like. Tom Cruise falls backwards into in Eyes Wide Shut because so much of like so much of like the kind of, you know, masked orgy kind of thing is basically like the sort of elite trying to like, you know, do their own return with a V to like the kind of like libertine aristocracy of the period of Barry Lyndon. And so there's a sort of there's a lineage there.
3: Gosh, yeah, leave it to Kubrick to to get those details in. Yeah. In terms See. of uh, black dots and everything. Wow.
1: The full life cycle, Barry Lyndon to uh, eyes wide shut. Hmm. And then the, the eyes go wide shut. That's right. Dump, dump, dump. So for um, Resident Life Enjoyer. I was looking through the, the you know, list of guests and it jumped out at me. So, and this is something that we've talked about a bit, but uh, Gio, Ortant, Nick Dollinger, John Pellick, Brendan, Kevin and Brad, uh, Kevin Kautzman, Brad Kelly of Art of Darkness, you, of course, uh we matt and i were discussing it and we, you know and obviously you guys are all close to the uh the tpn sphere perfume nationalist sphere and uh we thought this a uh, name for this scene or whatever could be the uh the weird
2: right yeah i mean that definitely tracks we are definitely weirdos um <laughs> and it i mean it, it also tracks for You know, like sort of all that, like, sort of pulp and noir stuff that we were talking about earlier with Apocalypse Confidential, where it's like, you know, weird, like, you know, thinking back into like the 1930s, where it was like weird tales and like weird menace, you know, that the genre where it's always like the sort of half naked girl, you know, tied up on a, you know, stone altar with like someone in a hood with like a crooked dagger, kind Mm -hmm. of like. So that weird menace thing and then like sort of weird fiction of like Clark Ashton Smith and Lovecraft and so forth. And so, you know, because we're all tapped into that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, weird, weird, right. Definitely makes sense as an appellate.
1: Yeah, no, I mean, we um, we kind of thought of it uh, both in that sense, but also um, this kind of like cultural sphere that uh, that we're in. It has, as we discussed earlier on the episode, a lot of people who are uh, politically right-wing, but then a lot of people who are just not comfortable in... There are artists, artistic individuals, but uh, the kind of progressive liberalism of the entertainment and publishing industry doesn't suit them. And so as a result, they, they find themselves in this space as well. And so Matt and I both went to the DeVere Ball... And we were you know, speculating <laughs> that a lot of people in this room are, you know, you know not really right wing by any sense of the definition, despite the way the media would paint the event. Uh, they're, they're just kind of like, well, people looking for a party, but but also people who are just like creative mm-hmm. and don't uh, don't fit in in a segment of the entertainment or cultural industry that is censorious and uh just like not fun
3: it's kind of like that dissident dissonant uh dissident dissonant um dichotomy you laid out earlier um and yeah i don't know i was kind of saying to dan too like a lot of my favorite podcasts and i would even put like art of darkness um in, in that category um and, and maybe even some people would, would view our podcast this way where you can you can almost forget that you got here through politics for you know episodes at a time because the the topics are so um so so multifarious and like not just just often not directly related to to politics at all even with those metapolitical assumptions we're having um brendan luso on you know uh soon as well and i mean i think his uh tales from the mall and then his um sensory deprivation chamber play is kind of a good example of that where it's something that came out of uh a sphere that had a political grouping principle, but it's so it's just so apolitical and, and so enjoyable in its own right.
2: Yeah, it's sort of like a, I don't know, it's post-political in a way. And I guess it's sort of jumping the gun because obviously we still have, you know, like the current sort of regime or mm-hmm. paradigm in place. But like I guess our sort of, you know, the mentality that you're sort of laying out. It's sort of like, you know, we've we've talked about politics to death and we all Mm -hmm. you know, we all know the direction things need to go. And we all sort of, you know, and people are still welcome to discuss things on that level. But like at this point, we're sort of more interested in like talking about like what comes after that, I guess.
3: Yeah, no, no. And I I think when I I mentioned earlier, like finding a lot of a lot of guys like you and, and other Ah, uh, people in the general sphere, definitely the perfume nationalists, as Dan mentioned. It was all like 2020 uh, when I when I found it, and uh, my my online and my Twitter experience has improved immeasurably since then. I mean, it was kind of no fun, or it, it got old fast before when it was all about politics. But yeah, now I think there has we all have been engaged in this process of thinking, like, yeah, what comes what comes next? Not because anything is resolved politically, but just because there has to be some some outgrowth of that and and yeah if anything things have gotten you know somewhat worse perhaps politically there things are i I always i think i probably said on this podcast before that things are just kind of rather dull and uninspiring on the political platform right now you know we'll see what happens in 2024 but there's a real need uh you know for these kinds of spaces and i think they've been one of the great flowerings of uh (laughs) of the trumpist uh you know online sphere shall we say
2: yeah it's sort of i mean it's like just sort of like thinking about you know you know thinking about what the sort of blauergeist brand is it's like you know i mean i feel like i used to do like threads and talking about politics and stuff but like Mm -hmm. i mean nowadays i basically what are my my three main tweets are basically just woke up from a nap joey o'clock and then just me watching some like weird random like 70s like sleazoid like you know vampire porno or some shit like that yeah and it's like you know it's sort of like posting you know posting sort of past the political stuff i guess definitely yeah yeah
1: it's good (laughs) to know like where uh you feel most comfortable and like post like there are enough people who do the kind of politics thing and you know frankly it's um you know, it's not very fun. I find it's much more, I mean, like, okay, it is a little bit safer as well. I'm, you know, in less danger of losing my Twitter account. But uh, aside from that, like, you know, it's just kind of like some of these things are just very obvious and, you know, you, you state them and, you know, they're the, the obvious rejoinders to it. And um, it's, it's so much more fun sometimes to say things in ways that are, um, more circuitous more
3: circuitous and i mean there's only so many of us who can post like curtis yarvin style tweet threads and things like that and it's much more interesting shall we say to be a a resident life enjoyer you know i feel like that is kind of like a, a theme um definitely to posters like you jacob and um you know we could get uh we could get all like college critical theory about it and be like well actually uh to to post about simply (laughs) enjoying your life as a man in america uh, (laughs) political and i say that as a joke but but you know there i think there's something to that too i think there is like a little bit of a uh, i just want a grill man type of mentality that's the boomer thing we're not we're you know we're not necessarily boomers in that way but you know you know what i mean like in posting about these niche um you know uh cultural interests maybe maybe there is some some shred of uh not, a, not identitarianism, but, you know, a shred of sort of standing your ground uh, for, for what you, what you like to enjoy. But, but overall, yeah, no, it's, it's much more, it's not directly political and much more interesting for it, I think.
2: Yeah. Tweeting about smoking cigars indoors as a man is a revolutionary act. In I mean, yeah. Where's the line?
1: <laughs> I mean, it, it kind of is like, I, you, I'm, if, if you, have, you have a girlfriend, I'm surprised you get away with that. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, hey, I I would I would not get away with smoking my cigars indoors.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> I remember I tried it actually in uh, in college. I so like I I never had siblings and I you know went to you know college obviously obviously I guess I don't know <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so I'm I'm in the dorm and like this was in 2004 so people weren't as crazy about smoking but I light up a cigar in my room. And some guy like yeah, a big uh, football player type guy comes to my door. He's like, you got to put that out. It's fucking stinking on the floor. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm like, oh, shit, man. Okay. I'll, uh, yeah. I'll, uh. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it, it is a revolutionary act, smoking
2: cigars indoors. <laughs> it's like that. You just got to have that, you know, Arnold mindset. You got to be, you know, you have to think to yourself, I'm ballsy. I'm a stud. You just got to do it, brother.
3: That's
1: right. It um yeah, there's something really fun about like you just it's like it it feels good and like it's a lot more fun than smoking a cigarette. It's just like I don't know. It's like a
2: performance almost. Oh yeah. Well, I mean the the Stogie buzz is definitely real. Like, I mean I've jokingly, semi-jokingly tweeted about how it's like, you know cigars are a you know like a hallucinogen or something like that but i mean they really do like affect you in like a way
1: oh yeah
3: yeah interesting
1: yeah like when you're like done with a cigar like well you've like i mean you're not inhaling really much but like you like feel feel it way more than even after like you know a whole bunch of
3: cigarettes it's uh it's a more um it's there's more of a build to it there's less of a rush more of a build and it, it's more of like an atmospheric, put you in a headspace thing than a than a cigar <laughs> Yeah, for sure. Are you a cigar man, Jacob? Is that part of what we're talking about here? I I wasn't sure. Oh yeah, no, I yeah. got into
2: cigars, um, sort of midway through 2020 because my papa, my grandpa, passed mm-hmm. away, and he was a big cigar guy. Like his his like you know white pickup truck reeked of like cigar smoke. And, uh, you know, we had, there was like some like leftover cigars from like his like collection. Yeah. Um, not super good ones, but I mean, there's a charm to that where it's like, you know, where it's like on one, on one hand, it's good to have the expensive ones. But like when, when you're just getting like the $3 sticks, that's how, you know, you're really into the stoky game.
3: Yeah. I mean, and... I, I've, I, I've smoked Swishers with, uh, with tobacco, rather right, right yeah. I mean. need so you're not uh, yeah i i definitely get it <laughs> and
2: yeah and so then like had like some l- leftover from his stash and like basically just like smoked it in commemoration with him of him mm-hmm. and then ever since then you know i've been hooked and like my place is like literally like down the street like only like a few blocks away from a cigar store here in where i live um and so it's a it can be a dangerous habit because you know these these sticks can get pricey and the guy oh, yes. at the store it, the guy at the store is a great salesman and so yeah. you know yeah he, right. he could easily sell me a pen because he could sell me you know these uh sticks that are like you know rack up but you know everyone needs their vices everyone needs their habits yeah.
3: Absolutely, no, I do agree with that. Uh, no, it's a, uh, it's, it's when you have a habit that's uh or a vice that's somewhat, uh, you know, controversial from a CDC type perspective. Um, I feel like it's even easier for someone to be a salesman because all because like you feel like you're in on it with them when you go into the shop there, but but uh, but but moreover, uh, I do appreciate although I, it's probably it's probably not always the best thing because I I'm not one of these people who actually thinks smoking is good for you or anything like that. But I do appreciate this kind of undercurrent online where uh unlike the online writer dissidence fear, whatever you want to call it, where there's this uh, um, pro tobacco sympathy. Cause it's, it's just yet another thing where the, you know, every everywhere else in the world pretty much is, is vehemently against cigarettes and against smoking against nicotine, tobacco, et cetera. But, um, yeah. but definitely the online right is a, is a bastion of like um, actually here's X, Y, and Z ways in which things are good for you. Uh, again, not sure if that's actually the best messaging overall, but uh, but it, it is always fun to me. And I love the uh, cigarettes over weed type memes. You know what I'm talking about? Like where it's like yeah. the bell curve.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
3: Well, it's sort of like, I mean, the whole, I've
2: never really, I never really cared for the whole, like sort of like actually, you know, tobacco is good for, or cigarettes or cigars are good for you kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, I guess I have a bit of like the... Nihilist death drive in me, where it's like, no, the reason they're good is because they are bad for you. Yeah, um, no, it's true.
3: That's, a, that's yeah. a, I prefer that outlook. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah,
3: yeah. It's kind of
2: like,
1: well, like eating, uh, you know, like a delicious bacon cheeseburger. Like, I guess there are some people who will argue, like, actually, that's good for you. And it's like, I don't think so. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I mean, like, it's maybe it's not as bad for you as some other things, but it's not actually it's good because it's good. And Mm -hmm. so that's the same like reason with cigars. That's the same reason with like all of these things drinking. It's, it's good because it feels good. And, you know, hopefully it's bad if you do it too much and you have like, you know, issues that arise (laughs) from it. But um, yeah, no, it's we like these things because they feel good. Exactly.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it kind of goes to, I mean, I think there's probably a way we can, like, sort of tie it in with, like, the whole noir mindset because... Oh, yeah, and they're all smoking chimneys. Go on, sorry. Yeah, Arguing, um, you know, the whole sort of argument that, like, oh, they're good, actually, is kind of... It's just kind of, like, the inverse of the sort of, I guess, woke-schooled kind of they're bad, so don't do them kind of thing. Whereas, like, this true sort of Middle path, I guess, or whatever is sort of being like, it's like, well, I mean, yeah, it's sort of, I don't, I don't know, I'm trying, I'm grasping at
3: what no, I, I, think, I, I think know think what I you mean.
2: Yeah, I think Walt Disney said
1: it best, right? When he was like, I need hmm. to have some sins, and like, I yeah. think he recognized that smoking is a, a sin in some respects, but it's like, it's something that you, you need to have that stuff that you enjoy. And uh, we will. We don't
2: know what other stuff he was referring to.
1: Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, well, and the the smoking has, he has
0: <laughs> he
2: a great line that's like Walt Disney, quote unquote, doesn't smoke cigarettes.
3: I do. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's interesting. interesting. Yeah, I'll take another. Like, um, way, way, way too much of a reach here. But I'm just gonna go for it. If it sounds too retarded, we can cut it out. But it's almost like the way that cigarettes are regarded in American life is 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 almost like the way Donald Trump is regarded in america like the right way to view trump is the right way to view cigarettes and that it's not that you know he um obviously he is kind of this gaudy rich guy but what's cool about him is that he owns that he's it's transparent what he is that's his appeal so the right way to view cigarettes is also like that it's like no they're bad for you well i don't think trump's bad for the country so it's not a perfect metaphor to be clear (laughs) i'm a a trump fan i think both of us here are at new right but Uh, You kind of see what I mean. He's this aspect and, you know, Trump himself also hates cigarettes. So it's really not a perfect metaphor, but it's just one of these things. It's just one of these things that's been so demonized by um, the powers that be in the media, et cetera, that, you know, exactly what it is. And and there's something liberating about um, owning that and still liking it, um, you know, despite all of its uh, it's supposed flaws. Well, it's sort of like (laughs) embracing
2: the ambiguities and complexities of sort of like and war america you know
3: exactly yeah yeah, there, yeah and there is something noir about i think both of those sentiments
1: yeah i mean certainly there are ambiguities and complexities in trump and mm-hmm. like yes you know we uh some of us choose to embrace him anyways and i think yeah it's a similar dynamic with um stuff like cigarettes like it uh yeah you know <laughs> there's there's some you know it's not necessarily something that's good for you maybe you don't want to smoke it all the time but um mm-hmm. There's something to be said for it, right? And it's like something it's, to be it's, said for you know, Uh well, I I don't know if I want to say some of this. There's something to be said for uh, the way Trump acts in
3: many uh, situations, right? You, even even when it has a sort of destructive result, it's like it's like it's like that moment in uh noir in a noir plot line where it's like you have to choose between something that's going to hurt you in one way or something that's going to hurt you in another way, perhaps. And you, you know, you, you, there's a nuanced, it's a morally gray decision, but you got to make it. That's sometimes that, that you guess. just yeah. gotta grab life by the lapels
1: and, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought you were <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, just tell it who you
2: are. Yeah. So yes,
3: yeah. it's that's, that's treat, treat
2: like the junior associate, you know,
0: exactly.
2: <laughs> Boy boss vibes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Throw
1: him. Right into the meat grind. <laughs> no, no. That's right. We've never done that. <laughs> uh, one thing that I wanted to get back into, I realized that I missed it when I was going over Barry Lyndon. And I think it's, it's kind of important. It's a callback to one of our episode, earlier episodes. The uh, distinction between formalized violence versus wild violence, which is one of like the, you know, the, biggest takeaways I had from that episode. And so in the context of Barry Lyndon, it's um, he is in 18th century English society. He is in the British army. The um, the way in which you fought in those days was to like, essentially like march at each other on an open field and shoot until one side falls down <laughs> the most. And so there's a very formalized violence dueling, which figures heav- heavily into the movie is formalized violence uh, par excellence, especially at the end, where he was dueling with Bullingdon. Bullingdon is his. Um, well, he's the son of the lord who was married to Lady Lyndon, who um, uh, Barry Lyndon displaced, and he he married her, got her money, and so obviously her son, uh, little Lord Bullingdon, <laughs> is uh, he's he's not very happy with uh, Barry Lyndon, and for you know for good reason. And so there's a number of duels in the movie, you know, famously, they have a a duel at the end between uh, Lyndon and and, uh, Little Bullingdon. And um, so the way the duels were were fought in those days, I mean, there was um, the kind of like 10 paces turn and shoot, which seems like kind of more... um, if not fair, more just kind of like reasonable. But the way this duel was fought is you flip a coin and the loser has to kind of like uh, stand and bear it while the other person aims and fires at him. And like, yes, pistols were much more inaccurate those days. But like, nevertheless, you are standing in the way of gunfire <laughs> and just hoping it doesn't hit you too badly. So that's like, it's a kind of like wild scenario. And nevertheless, it was like, totally like, this is just part of the way society works. And it was sanctioned. And it was just like, you know, totally normal. But he gets in the most trouble, Barry Lyndon in this movie, for thrashing Bulling for uh, humiliating Barry in this uh, kind of recital event with other aristocrats around, and uh, and in that instance he was probably you know uh, you know very justified like uh, Bullingdon like really had humiliated him and he was furious and he just starts beating him and it but it's something that absolutely ruined his reputation and so in those days there's a real distinction between formalized violence which is okay. And wild violence, which uh, which is not, and this kind of like gets into a lot of stuff we've talked about on New Right, which is kind of like, to what extent is it more masculine, more more manly to like play by the rules, even though like you know it, it might be easier to to break the rules. You still have to play by them to be honorable or is the more honorable thing to be to be wild to, you know, and and I think and this calls back to an episode we did with the good old boys where we talked about this and they themselves were divided on it, I believe, Mm -hmm. with I think Merrick was the one who said if the, you know, the stakes are high enough. And I think they both agreed on this point, actually, if the stakes are high enough, yes, you are justified by using whatever means uh, necessary to achieve your goals.
2: Yeah, um, I don't know where, I don't know where to chew on with that, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, the whole idea of, like, formalized verse is wild violence. I think then you kind of see that how, how, uh, you know, maybe, like, our current situation in terms of, like, I don't know, like, anarcho-tyranny like kind of thing where it's sort of like the, the third sort of third sort of thing is then like sort of state sanctioned violence where it's like, you know, everything is like fucking falling apart. Like, you know, we have like all these like brain derailments and stuff like that. And I don't know where I'm getting at with this, but I mean, the, the sort of system itself is a, uh, act of violence i guess and um
1: formalized
2: it's the the system
1: and it like you know you're expected to so like yeah you're expected to ride trains that are gonna fall apart (laughs) you're expected to do like all these things that are like there's a, a formally danger dangerous element in it like you're going to commute to work and you might get uh you know brained by a hobo Like that's just part of like daily life in certain parts of America these days. And, um, but you yourself, like, will be, you know, like your behavior will still be judged very harshly. So like, if, you know, if you see like some like wild eyed hobo, like eyeing you up, like you, you can't, you know, attack him until he attacks you. And so like that, I think that's like a very good example in some respects of like we have this system of, You know, you have to play by the rules. And then, like, once, like, you know, the rules have the threshold has been met, you can, you know, you can be violent yourself, but uh, but not until then and only in that particular situation. So, I mean, not to get too political, but I mean, obviously, there's stuff that's been in the news with all sorts of. Um, you know, civilian, uh, some people call them vigilantes, other people call them, you know, just people standing their ground. So there's all sorts of instances where this, I think, is at play, where, like, there are certain situations where, you know, you are, like, given the okay to be violent, but until that point, you, you cannot be.
3: Yeah.
1: At least yeah, that's my and... thoughts on it. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess the takeaway is we need to bring back Duel lane.
0: <laughs> there we go. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah.
1: 20 pace. Well, I mean, they kind of
2: are. I mean, they have, you know, you, there's been cases where it's like they don't, you know, like fry them because it's like mutual combat. or. Whatever. I saw
3: that. Yeah, that's hilarious. Yeah no yeah, yeah, I mean uh we joke about this but BAP actually a, a lot on Caribbean rhythms will talk about bringing back dueling and I mean I I won't uh give a definitive opinion but uh there's something to it there's something to that kind of formalized um it's kind of like a, a middle path a little bit where it's like it, it's not the total um it's not it's not the what we have now which is in some ways is is a society that's is a little too Anti, it's a little too antiseptic until all of a sudden you're the victim of violence. You know what I mean? You're kind of depowered as you talked about, Dan, even though there's violence around you. Um, but it's also not the the war of all against all. It's that, it's that formalized middle path that I think people find disturbing in a modern context, that such a thing would actually be sanctioned. But I think when you think about the dynamics of violence and the way that it underlies society and the way that society is founded upon violence, the notion of a formalized duel actually makes quite a bit of sense um you know I, I say that you know sitting behind my computer it's not like i want to get challenged to a duel and that'd i be happy to go out and do one or anything but uh it's, it's it's an interesting thought experiment for sure well i mean and then it's like the
2: whole thing with the dueling that like the sort of dueling culture is then you know the and i think it was one of us maybe it was me who talked about it in that Barry Lyndon episode is it's like well then a you know a dueling society is a polite society exactly right because I was about
1: to say that. the whole yeah. the
2: whole infrastructure of like etiquette is basically because prevent people from you know being in a situation where a duel would be necessary so you know Matt it's like you don't have to worry like you don't have to worry about getting into a duel as long as you know you like sort of obey the etiquette like rules of and niceties that we've sort of established yeah
1: so yeah like southern honor cultures uh like kind of black male honor cultures um i mean i'm sure like you know if, if you're today well southern honor culture is kind of a descendant of the the scots irish and the like mm-hmm. the borderlands up there like um yeah i mean i think like in general i think of those cultures as being like pretty courteous until it's not so like very friendly very engaging but then like you know oh if you step over the line then suddenly it's it's on so um yeah not like whereas let's say a casual like new york city dinner party or something people might like outrageously insult other people and it just be like oh well you know that's uh that's how it goes it's yeah. that's just that's like him being him
3: <laughs> uh yeah i'm told that there's countries on earth and possibly even in europe and eastern europe maybe hungary i don't know the details on this but where these where, where there are still not not legal duels but there's still enough of an honor culture that it's a real issue that uh you know there's people who feel duty-bound uh to kill in certain instances i don't know all the sociological details but i obviously these types of things do live on um beneath the Outside of the sanction zone, so we, so we say. I would believe that from what I know about Hungary, because yeah. I, I know a little bit
1: about it from Matt, Matt Forney, and my uh, my girlfriend did a Fulbright there, so right. she um, she spent quite a bit of time there. And uh, yeah, it does seem to have that kind of genteel um, honor culture still. Hmm. So uh, yeah, the next uh, New Right episode live from Budapest. <laughs> The duel. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Matt and I duel. (laughs) Well, I was on Art of Dark yesterday. They were, um, Kevin was, had some choice words about our competition, our jockeying for status, uh, on the, uh books and literature podcast rankings in cyprus so keep oh memory. yeah yeah <laughs> I saw it. they're beating us right so, by well, yeah he but he said uh if we ever if we ever usurp them um it would be it would be war is what he told me I <laughs> so don't... maybe maybe he had a duel but yeah.
1: Well, yeah i know that um well brad at least seems like he's kind of woodsy so mm-hmm. i feel like he yeah. know how to how to handle himself out there <laughs> So uh, another topic we wanted to get into was uh, I was listening to your Tales of from the Mall episode with uh, obviously Brendan, but also Howling Mutant. Hilarious episode. Just, you know, you and, you know, two other hilarious guys. Mm-hmm. And you started talking a little bit about the horror movie genre. Mm-hmm. And that got me thinking about horror versus Noir. And how in uh, and I know Jaws is one of your favorite movies, and I, I think uh, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but I I would class that as a horror movie of sorts, and uh, for sure, yeah, yeah
3: no, scared me. And
1: <laughs> <laughs> and so, like in horror, to me, the classic horror is like it's a tale of good versus evil, usually with an external force that is evil and an ex- good and it's an external battle between good and evil, whereas noir good and evil is much more murky. It's not clear exactly who is good, who is evil, and much more that, like, it's, like, within each of us is good and evil. And so Mm -hmm. to the extent that there is a battle between good and evil in noir, I feel like it's a psychological or internal battle. And Mm -hmm. so, like, they're two very similar in that, like, they're both kind of scary in a way. But I feel like horror is uh, a much more clear-cut moral universe uh explicitly so than noir what do you think about that blauer or uh, rather jacob
2: yeah uh for sure and i mean it sort of gets into i guess because what the thing that we talk at apocalypse confidential is we're interested in the underworld whether that's sort of demonological or criminological and so whether that's like you know the crime noir stuff or sort of more occult kind of horror thing. Um, I don't know. I hadn't really thought about it just, you know, contra uh, noir. Um, But like, I do think about sort of, I guess maybe one frame of reference for this is sort of like noir versus uh, giallo. Um, like, sort of, like, Italian kind of, like, proto-slasher kind of thing.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, Because they both have pretty similar roots. You know, obviously, noir comes from, like, you know, dime store, pulp paperback kind of stuff. And then the giallo, they come from, um, well, you know, obviously, because giallo is yellow in Italian, so it comes from, like, the sort of yellowed page, like,
0: oh, you know, dinosaur,
2: yeah. paperbacks and stuff. And, like, Basically, like, I don't know that maybe there's a distinction without much of a difference or something to me because ultimately, like, at the end of the day, the difference between whether something is crime thing or a horror thing is just sort of like how long the camera focuses on the victim screaming, I guess. Yeah, no. And because it's like, you have, you do have, like, a lot of noir that go into, like, very sort of, like, horroristic sort of modes. Like, you have, like, what is the one called? There's, like, one called The Prowler from, like, 1951 by Losey or Losey, I forget how, I think it's just, yeah, Joseph Losey, which is a very sort of, like, like, sweltering, kind of, like, claustrophobic noir thing about like a voyeur, and then of course and then it's sort of like as like a dichotomy is then you have a different movie called The Prowler from 1981 which that's just like a straight up like slasher movie um and there's no obvious connection other than the fact that they're both called the same thing um Mm. and then you have movies like M you know by Fritz Long
1: Mm. which
2: is like basically like that's you know, a horror movie, more or less, about, like, a child murderer, but it's also sort of very noir-like. Definitely. And it, like, under... Yeah, yeah, and it underlines the fact that it's, like, so much of noir is, like, rooted in, like, the German expressionism of, like, the 20s. Like, you know, all that sort of, like, lights and shadow and fog and stuff like that. Um, Yeah. And so, I don't know. I think I would actually sort of, I guess... I'm talking myself into counter-arguing what you're saying. And I think there is definitely just, there's always been a strong like horror current to noir. It just is sort of like presented in a different way.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think I, I think I agree with that more or less. We're talking about about with Dan um, leading up. Like I, I think that they're kind of parallel genres that, that you know it's just a different aesthetic there's kind of a different intentionality behind them the you know the horror movies intention is typically to scare the noir the noir movies intention is typically uh you know maybe more you know maybe more procedural maybe more philosophical although absolutely both horror movie horror movies can also be very procedural and philosophical as well so there's a plenty of overlap but i think that like the sort of metaphysics, so to speak, are not so different. I think that that both noir and horror are inherently sort of um, uh, like dualistic, uh, good versus evil type of genres. I think that oftentimes in horror movies, it's kind of a clear cut, like uh, e- evil is a is a very like, um, like the, the essence of evil is boiled down to one representative, whether as an external force or something from within human nature that is then countered or that then must be escaped. Um and then in noir things it tends to things tend to be a lot muddier. <laughs> the waters tend to be a lot muddier in terms of who's representing what. But nevertheless, I do think they're kind of both dualistic. Both of them take good versus evil and that struggle very seriously. Uh you know, ne- neither of them are like morally relativistic genres in, in any sense. Um b- both well, a good of take, sort of
2: yeah. A good movie to sort of look at is, I mean, Psycho, which obviously is sort of like the, you know, godfather of like the slasher genre in a lot of ways. Um, But like, I mean, I think a lot of people look at it so much as like a horror movie and they look at the shower scene and like the, you know, Bates Motel, all that sort of Gothic kind of stuff. But like a lot of people forget that like so much of it is based on like you know, Marion Crane, like, she, like, steals a bunch of money from her employer and to, like, go go off with her boyfriend or something oh, yeah. like that. A
0: good and example. then,
2: so, like, it starts off with, like, a straightforward, like, noir crime thriller kind of, like, you know, that's, like, the sort of MacGuffin of it. And then it's sort of, like, everything becomes, like, sort of, like, startlingly clear-cut because, you know, this you know this woman this character has like these sort of like murky motivations and like sort of like this there's this whole sort of uh i guess intrigue about like this money and like the getaway and all that stuff but then ultimately none of that matters once she steps into the steps into the shower and gets like stabbed to death and then you know it becomes a completely different thing um and so it's sort of like, I guess, whereas noir kind of revels in, like, the complexities of, you know, life or whatever, uh, horror is much more about, like, this clarity of, like, all right, that person has a knife and it's coming at you and you don't have one. And that's what life is.
3: Yeah, no, it, it's interesting. There, it's it, There's no, it's, yeah, there's less of a... Uh contradiction there's you no know, like uh yeah they're complementary is what i'm trying to say they they, they deal yeah. in different levels of experience as you said you know how long does the camera focus on uh the victim screaming how long does the camera focus on the blood maybe that's as much the difference as anything yeah and there's certainly instances of complex
1: protagonists in harvard as well protagonists who are not uh clearly good or clearly you know evil so yeah i mean there's a, a certain murkiness in both genres i would say absolutely so we were uh we were wondering uh matt matt and i didn't know between each other uh, at, at what point did you decide to um uh, transition. To, ah! to, to, uh, I started transitioning to, uh, <laughs> to uh, move from Flower uh,
2: to Jacob Everett. Uh, that started, I think, I changed it last year. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe more recent, but I mean, a part of it is because of like you know doing Apocalypse Confidential. And it's getting sort of more reach, and it's have it's sort of getting more like real world. I mean, as much as that, I mean, everything has sort of been infused with online. So it's there's no real, like yeah, touch grass yeah. world anymore. But like, in terms of like you know, just generally sort of real world, maybe out out of our sphere kind of thing is a better way of putting it. Mm-hmm. Um, exposure and. Um, and, you know, like I a part of it is a pride thing because it's like I like, you know, I look at Apocalypse Confidential and it's like, well, our didn't make that. I did.
3: Yeah. Um, well, I, think it, I think what you're saying.
2: And it's like, yeah. And so it's like Jacob is my real name and Everett is like a family sort of name. And but it's like it's you know so it's real enough or it's like there you don't feel like the sort of disjointedness of person versus persona yes i um,
3: see what you mean you know like yeah that's i've why made similar I... turns within my online career um yeah go yeah. on Dan. yeah that's why i chose dan baltic my first name is
1: dan the last name is not baltic but like i knew it was like it this is a a gnome de plume that i can kind of like stand behind and feel like it's like If not my family name, it's like, you know, I can claim it as my own and feel like a certain amount of accomplishment as I see, um, you know, uh, writing and accolades or whatever accrue to this, this name. And I remember before I started this, a friend of mine, uh, then a good friend, he um, said something like, well, why would you even want to do any of this if it's not under your real name? Because no one will know it's you. And it's like, well, that's a good point in in a certain sense. But I mean, we exist at a certain moment in the culture where, like, unfortunately, I I can't have all of my friends and family know it's me because, you know, of various career and whatever complications. So, like, I don't know. I feel like we've we've entered a uh, a moment in the culture where our alter egos uh, are very important and like, uh, you know, we live a certain portion of our lives through our
0: our
3: uh, alter egos. I mean, I, I definitely agree, but as kind of as Jacob alluded to, I think there's something to, there's something to the middle path, right? I've, I've long, this has been less of an issue in the past like year, but online, there was actually been times with BAP and others getting into it about whether or not anyone should be anonymous, whether or not anyone should be public with a lot of people having pretty firm opinions on either side, like, no, everyone should be public, no, everyone should be anonymous. I've always been, well, I've always been a believer in two things. One, that, you know, mileage varies and people should make their own decisions and, and others should respect that. Ha, this sounds a little bit like gender politic, politicking here, but you get what I'm saying. Um, But then the other thing I've always thought is that there's something to the the middle ground of it all where, yeah, you, you're sort of there's some indication, you know, the way that Dan that you are open about that you're a lawyer and that you actually built a lot of your online joking about that. There's something to not hiding who you are, not playing. You're not playing a character. You're just, um, you know, taking some precautions so like it's not because uh, because yeah. there is a difference, obviously, between your online presence and, and your real life. That's that's fine. That's healthy in a sort of more performative sense. It's all good for us to have our own little. Uh, personas that we're crafting but I do think there's a middle ground where you can still give some indication as to who you are which and take credit um, along with that uh, while also not being um, totally public or totally anonymous absolutely to me it's
2: it's the not playing a character thing is more important than the sort of like whether someone is like a non or not like I mean I'm fine obviously you know people people do what they got to do, but, like, to me, the thing that's sort of weird and annoying, it's, like, when someone is just, like, and I don't have any examples off the top of my head, I'm not gonna, I'm not talking shit about anyone in particular, but, like, when it's just, like, you can just tell that, like, straight up, their, like, online presence is completely different from who they are, you know, in the quote-unquote real world, that becomes the issue because that becomes, like, I mean, that becomes like a gradual like sort of fracture of like the self and Mm -hmm. so I think you know and that's also a part of why I just decided to go by Jacob Everett is because it's like you know everything that I I tweet about as tweeted about as Blauergeist is like stuff that like I mean I talk about in real life anyway exactly yeah like I'm I'm it's like I'm that person anyway so like there's really no there was really no point in having the sort of blauergeist, you know, nomenclature.
3: Mm-hmm. No, that makes a lot of sense. I just, yeah, I remember like, it was like you and uh, Brendan, who used to go by Gorgonzola, man, you know, it was kind of all yeah. at the same time. I remember a bunch of people uh, started, started going by less online type monikers and some of them base stocks, so to speak. And it, but, it, but it made sense as like, a, as a, as a, as a development of where this scene was going Again, as you said earlier, Apocalypse Confidential is hardly a political organization anyway. Uh, so I think it makes sense to come uh, come out from behind the the mask a little bit.
1: Yeah. Yeah. was so sure. in like previous eras, like this is how you met people. You met people through your mutual interests and to like, you know, being entirely anon. That's no fun. You yeah. want to meet the people who you connect with absolutely well i think that takes us through our list here of uh, our outline but uh, we're you know happy to stay on if uh just anything else that you guys want to get into
3: yeah i had i actually have one last i'll let um jacob definitely if you have any other things you want to bring bring up or questions you want to ask us by all means i had one Last yeah. callback to make to an oh, earlier yeah, bit ahead. of the episode. Not sure if this will come across as a question, or this will generate much much discussion. But kind of a light bulb went off when you're talking about the Lovecraft of it all, and the 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 Cthulhu mythos, and the influence of that on Apocalypse Confidential. Kind of reminded me a little bit. I didn't have the, I couldn't quite formulate the words when this first came up. So I, I think we just moved on. But it reminded me a little bit of the conversation I was having with um, Brad and Kevin yesterday on Art of Darkness about William S. Burroughs. Um, we, were ta- we were talking about Burroughs. We talked about all his many um, proclivities and interests, many of which I think probably are, you know, noir in their way and, and in line. I'm sure you guys talk about Burroughs on Apocalypse Confidential sometimes, but specifically we were talking about we read the, a piece that I think Nick Land had had written in the 90s for the um, the CCRU. I think it's called the Cybernetic Something Research Unit yeah. uh, called the Lemurian Time War. Uh, and it was, uh, it was a very strange and trippy piece about something about burrows and the lost can- continent of Lemuria and these ancient lemur people that he may or may not have sincerely believed. It was a very like kind of trippy thing like that. But uh, it, it really struck me that um, Lovecraft was also interested in sort of pseudo geography and lost continents like Lemuria and Atlantis. And it really and to also to hear you talk about Lovecraft earlier and some of the other writers uh, and even like the the expanded Elroy uh, underworld universe. It's just sometimes feels like uh, uh, it sometimes feels like there, there's almost like this undercurrent of, you know, perhaps fictional, but perhaps not completely fictional reference points that go across like a whole network of different writers from Lovecraft to Burroughs, perhaps to Elroy. Um, and it's it's it almost feels like the, it's like this alternative um alternative sociology that like may or may not have any basis in reality, but that's like shared like a shared subjectivity almost or like a shared expanded universe of different different writers. Um, that's not a question. I'm just wondering if that does that resonate at all? Is that like kind of in line with the apocalypse confidential uh, aesthetic?
2: For sure. And it's sort of like a shared, yeah, shared mythos, shared it's not even because it's like you're talking about like the lost continents and stuff it's like almost like it's less soci in like our sort of preoccupation with the underworld it's less sociological and maybe almost more like sort of like geographical and yeah. i mean this ties into our next special is gaia horror which is sort of like you know <laughs> like yeah the way I would put it is like body horror, but for geology and like mm-hmm. bio biology or oh, ecology and stuff like that. And so there, yeah, there's this sense of like a hauntedness of space around us. And like the sort of one thing, one thing that I always sort of harp on is like parapolitics, you know, this study of like conspiracy and stuff like that is to like, history or current events as, like, urban exploration is to architecture. Yeah. And just, like, like this sort of, like, the sense that, like, you know, these... We always sort of, like, talk about, like, these smoke-filled rooms and these corridors of power as in, like, a metaphorical way. But, like, one thing I'm fascinated by is that it's, like, no, there are physical spaces where these sort of plans are hatched. Like there is there is a room somewhere, probably at like the, you know, some like Texas oil billionaire's house. There is a room where they schemed the Kennedy assassination, for example. Yeah. Yeah. There is like a there is like a room where they, you know t- take any sort of like conspiracy and there's like there's an actual like sort of physical space attached to it. And that there are actual doorways and like that, you can like sort of go through and walk down the halls of where you are sort of like confronted with that like sort of like you know the this hidden madness of the twentieth uh, and twenty first century.
3: Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. That's a fa- this a fascinating image, and maybe that's a little bit of a maybe maybe it's a stretch. But maybe it's almost a little bit of a uniting factor between uh, your work now and the work you're engaged in with bathescaring last time. That we spoke, where you know it's that you were you were dealing with rooms there in an aesthetic sense, and 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 still, you know, I guess there's that interest even within, um, the more noir, parapolitical angle, um, you know, still, um, uh, the interest in in space and the relation of spaces with that which is done inside them persists, perhaps. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: The room where it happens.
2: Exactly.
3: So, yeah. yeah.
2: Hamilton with Lynn Manuel Miranda's pill um yeah it's like I mean so it's sort of like the one thing I wanted to bring up is like to me the image and this goes what we were talking about with like spaces is the image that I have for Apocalypse Confidential is this anecdote that like I read and posted about like a while ago where during sort of like usual like I guess like that sometimes they have to do like rescue exercises in the catacombs for the Parisian police mm-hmm. because, you know, chorus will get lost down there. So they like every once in a while, just, you know, do usual, like, like sort of regular, like exercises in there to be acclimated to it. So during these regular exercises, Parisian police in the catacombs found a basically makeshift movie theater there with like a functioning wow. bar and huh. like functioning like phone lines and sort of before they got there they heard like r- audio recordings of like snarling dogs to basically ward them off mm-hmm. and um and like there was like a collection like basically there was a dissonant uh collection of like sort of like symbols and stuff like the hammer and si- sickle was next to the swastika and stuff. so no sort of discernible like ideology to it it was just sort of complete chaos and so they see this functioning movie theater and this bar and phone line and stuff and they're like all right this is weird and then they go up back out of the catacombs and then after what they managed to get the next day they get like some expert who uh you know i guess for whatever reason to like go down with them and the next time they were there, the phone lines were cut. And uh, there was oh. a sort of note saying, do not try to find us. Jeez. And yeah. to me, to me, that is a sort of perfect encapsulation of the kind of tone that we like at Apocalypse Confidential, where you have, like, the police, you have criminality, you have, like, dissonant uh, ideology, you have, like, sort of, like, literal underworld stuff. And you have like sort of movies and everything like that, and yeah, that it, that is the Apocalypse Confidential worldview in then par then,
3: excellence. Yeah, that makes sense. No, no, absolutely. And what's wonderful about that stuff, you know, whether or not it's shady interests um, theoretically operating, um, it, it's wonderful to kind of refine, rediscover mystery within the world because I think that's something that is is so often missing, you know, in the in the overly rationalized world and and especially with the internet with the the internet obviously is is the starting point for a lot of us and kind of going down these rabbit holes but nevertheless there's a sense that 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 all information is now available there's so much less mystery in the world now than there used to be is what I'm trying to say but um, it's almost like with with projects like Apocalypse Confidential it's kind of rediscovering those caverns uh, of the unexplained uh, and the uncanny um, and and that's something that I think there's a real uh, need for now.
1: And also that we don't necessarily want to be found like the, like they didn't by the people who uh, we don't want to be found by. Like um, we were talking about the Vanity Fair article recently and Mm. how it would be a mixed blessing to be, to be mentioned in any of these, you know, uh, taxonomies, uh, mainstream taxonomies of the quote unquote new right or dissident right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, frankly we have the listeners we want to have and we we'd like to have more but i mean we don't want to have so many that we have listeners and we have readers that we don't want yeah so (laughs) it's uh it's an interesting you know situation where like you um you know we're we're all kind of like a, a private
2: club yeah that's right private stogie club (laughs) We're all we're all smoking cigars and watching movies in the catacombs. With our buttered rums. Yeah. Damn right.
1: What uh what is a buttered rum, (laughs) by the (laughs) way?
2: Buttered rum is uh hot buttered rum is it's rum, obviously, a spiced rum. And then you add hot water, um unsalted butter, and then like cinnamon, nutmeg, allspice.
1: Oh
2: wow. And, and yeah, it sounds a, good. good yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, that does sound yeah. good. I'm I'm not a big mold wine fan, but that sounds good, I must say. Yeah. Well, on that note, um I think that about brings us home.
2: Or oh, yeah. Unless yeah, there's uh
1: yeah. Yeah, thank you for uh coming on uh Jacob. And uh, yeah, I mean, again, um, Apocalypse Confidential, everyone should be reading it. Everyone should be listening to Resident Life Enjoyer. (laughs) And um, yeah, please, uh, you know, uh, take this chance to, you know, tell anyone where they should go to uh, check out whatever you uh, you want
2: them to check out. Yeah, everyone should go to apocalypse-confidential.com. Follow us on Twitter at Atcon uh, underscore Mag. And on Instagram, we're also there at Apocalypse underscore uh, Confidential. Our next special, we recently dropped, I guess, yeah, recently, a couple weeks ago at this point, we dropped our love special, hmm. that which included a review of Dan's uh, Nutcranker by Brad Kelly. Everyone and should read it. Absolutely. And our next special is going to be for Earth Day. I mentioned it earlier, Gaia Horror. So if, yeah. you, if, you know, sort of body horror, but for, you know, the Earth and just sort of the sense of the ancientness of the Earth freaks you out, then submit and read for that special. And then we have a couple more specials down the road. We have Dust, which is John Ford and the Atomic Frontier. So that's basically like... uh fusion of old west stuff and then like atomic age like marginalia like basically imagine a imagine the las vegas skyline in the 1950s with a photo with the uh, marquee of the winking cowboy at the pioneer club and in the yeah. background you see the mushroom cloud that's <laughs> that's the aesthetic for that one and then in november for the whatever anniversary we are at for the kennedy assassination We're doing our Bad Back Jack Thanksgiving Spectacular, which is all about sort of like deep history and deep politics, sins of the family, sins of the nation, you know, whether it's left wing, right wing, you know, whatever wing, it's uh, sort of all part of one, you know, atrocious bird. And (laughs) uh, that should be a fun one, too.
3: Awesome stuff. I look forward to it. Yeah.
2: Yeah. No, the uh, the Revenge
1: of the Sky God, I guess, against the the Earth Mother. And
2: and I forgot we're getting into book publishing.
1: Oh, Um, hell yeah.
2: We should have mentioned, yeah. Yeah, we're getting into book publishing. We are going to formally drop our sort of announcement and submission guidelines uh, on Monday, so tomorrow. And our first book is going to be called The Book of by uh, a mysterious author named Frank Keek. And it's sort of like a collection of like, sort of weird Mondo, like extreme, increasingly disturbing crimes, like linked with some sort of religious fervor. Um, That should be, it, that's coming out May 8th. Um, awesome. Right. Yeah, and yeah, then I we're know. gonna do poetry collection uh, called Pale Townie by our poetry editor, Tom Will. That's sort of him riffing a bit on like the poem that's in pale fire and we don't have a release date you know nailed down for that one but that'll be sometime obviously this year and then we might have a couple slots where we're like one or two other books so you know we're just getting the press you know started this year but we're gonna start cranking them out awesome Awesome. no we can't wait to see you know what you
3: guys put out And we know other people
1: too. Like when uh, people have uh, heard that you guys are pivoting to publishing novels, like and you know other works, uh, there's a lot of interest, and there's a lot of hunger for this. So uh, yeah, I have no doubt you are going to be awash in submissions. (laughs) Oh yeah, (laughs) I I look forward to uh, to you know picking them up, reading them. Well, yeah, appreciate it. Absolutely. It uh, was great having you on, Jacob. Thank you for coming. Yeah, it was on. great to be yeah. on. Thank, Thank you so, so much.
0: Absolutely.